Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of The Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I really appreciate you being here with me today as I have a wonderful conversation with our colleague, Grace Wong. So you know how there are times in life where we are fortunate enough to cross paths with people who impact us and influence us in very specific ways. Well, this is how I feel about Grace. We've known each other for a number of years and I think originally crossed paths uh, through uh, childhood feeding circles many years ago now. And Grace has certainly been busy, as you'll hear in this podcast, together with a, a, a group of other health professionals. Grace has really contributed to developing the model and framework of responsive feeding therapy, otherwise called RFT. She's also been uh, busy developing supervision groups uh, alongside another colleague of ours, Noreen Hunani, who you'll remember from only a few episodes ago. And Grace is somebody who leads with true humility. So Grace has a, a kind of a ferocity to her, as well as being a very generous support to the broader community. She contributes in ways that are significant and yet also, um, you know, uh, leads with a, with a sense of wisdom and uh, a, a capacity which honours her own boundaries as well as those around her. So in this particular episode, we talk about responsive feeding therapy. We also talk about ARFID, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. So we talk about the strengths of some diagnostics and we talk about limitations and shortcomings as well, which we think is, is actually really incredibly important to be discussing. We talk about the five interrelated values at the core of RFT and Grace steps us through each value, which is autonomy, relationship, internal motivation, individualized care, and competence. Importantly, we talk about some of the potential strengths and shortcomings, again, of more manualized approaches and how RFT is really aiming to provide flexibility and a broad sense of what food feeding and eating can look like within an individual and also within a family and a broader system. What I really appreciate about Grace is the way in which she not only supports her clients and communities, but then also us as health professionals as well. Grace is somebody who is extremely generous with her wisdom and knowledge and shares this uh, in Facebook groups and in um, smaller community groups and in her supervision groups worldwide. So I'll tell you a little bit about Grace. She is a registered dietitian specialising in feeding and eating disorders. She works with all ages and provides medical nutrition therapy from a weight inclusive lens. Grace is highly experienced in working with a broad range of eating challenges, along with complex coexisting conditions, including medical conditions, developmental concerns, 
mental health concerns, addictions and trauma. Besides her clinical practice, she provides training and supervision for health professionals in Canada and overseas. If you would like to connect with Grace, you can do so uh, following the links in the show notes. And uh, I'd also suggest that you check out her supervision groups that she's running, as I mentioned, with Noreen Hunani. These two incredible women are leading the way in how we understand the um, complex intersections and interrelationships between food, feeding, and more broad human relationships, not only within families, but also more, more broadly in our communities, in our professional communities, and also in our personal communities as well. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I always so love speaking with Grace and um, and hopefully if you have seen uh, Grace's wisdom showing up in various uh, groups or listservs, then this will help you to put a voice to a name. This is a, surely is a huge treat for us and, um, and I do thank Grace so much for joining me for this conversation. If you'd like to learn more about The Mindful Dietitian and what's on offer, including training and courses and, and supervision and other podcast episodes, for example, or, or blogs about um, how to speak up if your child has been sent home with a side serve of diet culture from school, for example, which is one of the most downloaded blog posts that I have written, uh, then please uh, head over to the website, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. Again, thank you so much for being here, and I really hope you enjoy this episode with Grace Wong. Well, hello, Grace. It is so wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Hi, Fiona. It's been a long time. I'm so glad I get to talk to you today. Yes, it's been a number of years. You were one of my very early guests. And at that time, we did speak about uh, developmental feeding and, and, and family nutrition and your own children were really quite little at that time. So now we're kind of skipping ahead a number of years. I'm so curious to hear or for you to share a little of what you've been up to, because I am aware you've been up to quite a bit. Yes, it's been a few really busy years. Um, as you know, yes, I, I work in both eating and feeding disorders. And one of the development um, in this area is um, as you know, with the ARFID being a diagnosis put on in the DSM, there has been new momentum to kind of figure out what do we do with uh, this new diagnosis um, or the pediatric feeding disorder. So there's a lot more attention. Um, and then we struggle with what to do with this new diagnosis, because when there's new name, um, a kind of tagline a few years ago was we know this is a diagnosis, but we have no treatment for them. So a lot of um, colleagues struggle. And so one of the um, my project has been working with some colleagues to develop resources. And um, some of us feel like we've looked through the literature and we have some experience that we can bring together, um, including feeding therapist, physician, uh, myself as a dietitian. So we've been trying to, and we recognize, you know, all of us just bring in a little piece and then we really need to work together. So, um, so that includes, you know, a number of webinars and a conference and a number of resources that we have, uh, that we have made available and, and then also a course. So it's been, it's been a few busy years. Oof, yes. And you and others have brought so much richness to our community and really contributed towards a much deeper understanding about ARFID. And for those of you who might not be um, familiar with this 
word or acronym I should say in some words in some ways so ARFID is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. So Grace, do you mind giving us just a little summary of what, what ARFID is and, and how it might show up? And then I'm really, really so keen to hear more about RFT. Yeah, um, ARFID is essentially um, an umbrella diagnosis when we, we know there are lots of people who struggle with eating but do not fit neatly under the umbrella of anorexia or bulimia uh, or other diagnosis. So this is really about a diagnosis that says, you know, we, we know they struggle with eating and nutrition. It also has a psychosocial component to it. It has an impact um, and can be quite profound impact on how they're doing um, uh, in their psychosocial life. So this and so that's um, what this diagnosis is for. And of course, there are um, shortcomings. I'll just quickly mention this. And um, one of the things that we actually notice is, I, I know Fiona, you and I have talked a lot about weight-inclusive care. And a lot of, um, not just children, children, youth, and adults in large body uh, do not get this diagnosis. But we know some of the struggles that occur um, in um, this population that are underweight also applies in people in sort of what we call quote unquote normal body size or in a large body. And um, and and um, you cannot see me, I'm, I'm using air quotes for, for those categories um, because um, we, we tend to associate restrictive eating with a small size body, but we know some of these challenges with eating um, are across the board. And what is tricky with this diagnosis, it, it doesn't really delineate what that eating struggle is. So this could be someone who is in the major depression episode and who might not, um, may not have the stamina and who cannot eat and people, they don't understand why and then um, may get the diagnosis. This could be someone who might've been uh, on a feeding tube at some point in their life and that transition did not go well to solids and that they continue to struggle eating for years after. And when we meet them, they're only eating three to four foods and they may get this diagnosis. So it's a really kind of confusing um, uh, situation. Um, so that's why there's, there's a lot of um, uh, um, just a lot of people feel stuck and also impacts on um, individuals seeking help. A lot of families, but also I'm working actually with a reasonable number of um, teens and adults who since the name came out, they now they're like, oh, you know what I experience has a name and I, I'm not just someone who has some, you know, who struggles with eating. Um, so, so we're all kind of wrestling. And I, I often say, and, and uh, in some of the, um, the courses or webinars I teach, and I, I always share, this is not the only way, this might not be most correct way, but this is what is what we and and we as in myself and some of my colleagues who are coming together what we think is the best we can do right now and this can might continue to evolve and we love to get feedback and we love to continue to um to tweak and massage this but this is what we have found that works and this may even conflict with some conventional practices and so we're kind of putting it out there and why we kind of call we gave it a name as you you know if you know you said rft as in responsive feeding therapy is we, we're, we're kind of describing what we do and but we're also very clear that this may not resonate with everyone and but we want to put an approach out there for those who, who resonate with us. Yeah it's really interesting isn't it because the actual uh, 
formal diagnosis of Arthur is less than 10 years old. Like in the in the space of time across, um, you know, the decades um, that we have been aware of eating disorders being around in the world, this is a very, very short amount of time where these kind of um, uh, issues around feeding and eating and nutrition have really been have really come to the fore and been recognized as having life interrupting influences and impacts on people across the age spectrum. I really appreciated you mentioning that there are so many adults in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s who are now recognizing themselves in this um, within this particular diagnostic group, so to speak. Um, and it takes potentially a pretty special um, healthcare team, maybe, or, or, or somebody who happens to mention this to um, perhaps, perhaps somebody has been, um, who has self, self-identified as, you know, a, a fussy eater, a picky eater, a limited eater. I'm, I'm not too sure. A problem eater. I don't know how People, uh, people can self-identify in a way that they that they recognise, um, but that this this whole field has really exploded in lots of ways in terms of expanding our understanding about how different experiences interrupt and intersect. Um, you know, and as dietitians, you know, you and I are well aware of the hundreds and thousands of ways that nutrition, food, feeding, and the psychosocial influences really come together to all contribute towards a more um, maybe functional or maybe more adaptive or, you know, um, some people may call it positive, um, you know, uh, uh, workable relationship with food throughout a lifetime. So I would love now to move to responsive feeding therapy. You mentioned that you and some very notable colleagues, you developed a white paper, which it was extraordinary. And when you produced that, I just, I was like, everybody needs a copy of this. Definitely. Thank you. <laughs> and so tell us a bit, a bit about responsive feeding therapy. Yeah. So that, that paper was a lot of work. Thank you, Fiona. But we actually, we are hoping to do some revisions. And one of the things that we're identifying, we actually are, uh, we're looking for feedback, you know, specifically looking at, you know, neurodiversity, even what we have, we, we were pretty happy about it when we published it, but I think there's still going to be some tweaks. So, but for, for that, so the reason why we put this paper together is we know there are some wisdom and there's some really good feeding practices that we know and that's getting used in feeding therapy and and then we have this divide of these are what we think they're quote unquote normal and typical kids and then we use division of responsibility and then there is these kids that are uh, um that need therapy so we have this divide very clear black and white divide but we know in real life it it's not like that. You know, one of the examples I can think of is, you know, you've, you've done a lot of work in, in trauma education. Um, as I work with this population, actually, there's a big group that their, their eating challenges has nothing to do with sensory. It actually has a lot to do with, with, with trauma and maybe growing up in a very traumatic situation around food uh, or it could be dinner. It's a very traumatic environment um, or just experiencing some really life-altering trauma and then they're eating their body really feel unsafe and that really shut down their appetite so so you know there's that's another 
group. Um, so yeah, so so my point is, um, um, there is a lot, there's this divide, but we know the, the reality is we cannot put people in boxes like this. So what we want to do is how we, uh, myself and call my, my colleagues, so um, a few people who, who write this paper, um, a lot of you are familiar with Dr. Katia Rowell, my very dear friend and colleague, and then also two um, very uh, respected um, colleague. One is Joe Cormack. She is, um, she's gotten her PhD now. So she's Dr. Cormack. She's just like, uh, she has a background in psychology. So we have a therapist and then Heidi Moreland, a, a feeding therapist that I, I highly regard. Um, and um, so, so we came together kind of uh, representing medicine, psychology, dietetics, and, and feeding therapy and speech language uh, speech language pathology. We're like, okay, what? how do we explain what we do to people? Um, there's a lot of demand in learning this. So we were like, what can we do so that we can be more effective in explaining what, what we do? And so what we wrote, it's not, so we did not invent this. So none of what we write was something coming from, from ourselves. So it's not always something I explain that we didn't come up with this. We're really the curator. Um, so yes, it was, a, it was I, I also feel pretty good about this, but we have to, you know, um, recognize this is decades of work from a lot of our teachers, um, from mentors that, that we've learned from, and we kind of curated to make it applicable for therapy because um, in, in, practice, we find a lot of people completely push um, some good feeding practices away because these kids need therapy. So we do not talk about these good feeding practices. And, um, and we just do the therapy techniques. And, um, and then with when we do not identify people as having a feeding disorder, we tell parents that we don't need to do anything. We just need to think about these good feeding practices, which doesn't work either. So we're trying to come up with a way of helping people in this range, all the range to a way to think through it. So what we came up with was we, we kind of boiled down to five um, values. So they are autonomy, relationship, internal motivation, individualized care, or we're also, we're, we're playing with, uh, we might change it to the whole child approach. We're still playing with that. So, but the idea is we're looking at the person and then the fifth is competence. And what traditionally happens in therapy is we focus a lot on competence, developing skills, oral motor skills, sensory skills. But what we're really wanting, it's a balance of um, autonomy. The first one is autonomy. We want the person to have, to believe in themselves, able to, to direct and guide. We know eating is such an intimate act. Um, we feel the food we eat and throughout the process of ingesting and digesting. So we have to be in control of, of the eating. And I, I'm sure um, I've just, even for yourself, Fiona and, and listeners, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of people really want you to eat something when you don't want to eat, Fiona, have you had that experience? Oh, definitely. And what yes. was that like for you? Yeah. Um, well, with my personality type, that was definitely not what I wanted to do. So rather than doing it to avoid getting into trouble, um, I dug my heels in and said, no, I remember that very clearly. 
Yeah. So, so yes, so we all have this experience and we know it's not comfortable. So in your case, you were able to say no. And in some, in some cases, it's really hard for us to say no. For example, in a relationship where there's a hierarchy, for example, in a parent-child relationship, it's not that the parents intended to be that way, but it's as children, because of that working attachment, we want to please our, our, our parents, our big people, naturally. So sometimes then that relationship or when we have a really clear agenda, it can override that autonomy. That, that stress can, can be really tricky to navigate through, through therapy. So one of the themes that we want to highlight is, is autonomy. And why that's also important is a lot of these um, individuals we work with may have conditions that we cannot see just by our bare eyes. When you meet someone, we know we cannot tell what their bodily experience is. Mm. If this person might have, may, you know, maybe juggling with something in their mouth, we may not know. Actually, I just, I actually texted um, Katya yesterday. I had to get um, one of my dental filling redone yesterday. So they had to freeze part of my gum and my lips. And I had such a hard time eating and I was talking to Katya anyway. So I texted her that I cannot chew and swallow right now. And then she texted me back. She's like, that's a sensory motor challenge. I was like, absolutely. I couldn't eat. But you, if you look at me, you cannot tell that my lips cannot really move well, right? So sometimes we cannot eat maybe because of things that we don't know. And sometimes with these vulnerable children is there may be a diagnosis that we do not know at the at when we need them sometimes some of the genetic condition may not get really clear um until the later on or some of the sensory if they um, feel things really deeply in their body if their signals are very loud in their body um we may not pick up the other flags of a condition until they're older but then they start eating when they're really young. So without that autonomy, we could be pushing things that feels unsafe. So we're setting up that um, that not trusting body really early on. And we don't respect the autonomy. So that's that's why we put autonomy first and foremost there. And then second is relationship. We because we know eating is such a relational act. We don't want to take feeding outside of um, of relationships. So. A typical um, situation I used to run into all the time is um, kids get um, feeding therapy, but their parents are not involved and they, they all they know is it's not working, it's not working, but then I bring my kids to feeding therapy or the therapist tells them they're making progress, but I'm not seeing the progress at home. So, you know, there's still a lot of anxiety at the table um, or what happens in therapy do not get kind of transfer or generalize with what happens at home. So the other piece that we're really looking at is, you know, can we, you know, include the people um, you know, that feed these, you know, kids at home, but also really thinking about what happens at the table, mm. because they might have polished up their skills, but if their environment feels really stressed, um, and, and sometimes we, 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 um, what I'm trying to say is, for example, I, I'll, I'll use an example, is sometimes I have had so many parents share that they do not like what they do to their children at mealtime, but they just do not know what else to do. Mm -hmm. So parents actually disconnect. They're like, I do not like that crying, but I was told I need to do this. So they disconnect and children feel the disconnection. So the table just become very stressful. So then the anxiety developed from there. So it may start out with a more... Um, specific condition 
But when the therapy process do not pay attention to the relationship, the relationship can cause a lot of, um, it's not the relationship with itself, but it's the strain feeding relationship can cause anxiety on top of it. So that's why sometimes we don't just see um, a, a stuckness with eating, but also um, uh, anxiety that comes from that. So sorry if you know, I'm taking a really long time to explain each of these points No, here. that is, no, that is absolutely brilliant because what we're, what you're doing here, Grace, so wonderfully is really peeling back the layers and offering us a context for why responsive feeding therapy has been kind of developed in that way. And, you know, with, uh, autonomy and relationship being one and two what you what you have explained just absolutely beautifully here is that without this sense of i can i am able to i am in charge and i am safe in this space in this relationship then it makes feeding ourselves really hard or allowing other others us to allowing others to feed us if that's the age appropriate um, you know, you know, kind of um, situation or allowing others to provide us with the food on our plate, even if we're the ones using our, our fingers or our utensils to actually get the food from the, the plate or the bowl or the table or the picnic rug or the, I don't know, the ground even, you know, however, there's lots of ways that food gets, gets ingested. Um, yeah. So, how about I quickly? Sorry, I was thinking. How about I quickly go through the other three? So yeah, we have please. that, and then yeah, we yeah. can kind of go from there. So the the third one is internal motivation. So very quickly, it's kind of go with autonomy. But what we believe is internally motivated changes are going to be more sustainable and more um, helpful um, for this person's overall long term relationship with food. Um, we can make a person eat, but that may not continue if. If that's not what they want to do, we we hear that a lot. Like they went to a treatment, they were able to eat all this thing, and then when they left, um, everything goes back to normal at home. So one of the I think it's quite unique, different from some other therapy approaches is we're really focusing on internal motivation, and that's based on a belief that actually children or individuals, humans, want to do better. They will they will diversify. They will try new foods when they're able and capable, and we're internally motivated to do that. So that's internal motivation. The fourth one is the individualized care. It's really seeing the person as a whole person, um, which means we're not, I'm not going to be giving parents a sheet of paper saying this is what I do for every person. I'm going to do a really thorough assessment and really getting your story, and then that helps me to decide what makes the most sense. So it could be for some family, my first thing I would do is we might have to resolve the constipation first because there have been, constipation might not have been what quote unquote caused the eating issue, but now it's really getting in the way. We might have to do this first. For some people, we might have to look at um, getting eating um, in a more scheduled way first. So it's very different. And uh, for some family, we might have to think about their brain-based difference. So some of the good feeding practices do not apply so that we might have to adjust certain things. So that's the, the, the whole child approach, a whole person approach that, that these are some guidelines, but we trust that um, the clinician, you're going to do a thorough job and then you're going to individualize and do what makes the most sense for this person rather than following um, kind of um, a, a step to step, uh, step by step guide. And then the last one is um, competence. So we include that because we recognize that um, 
a lot of people do need that support around skills and competence. And so we're not taking that out, out of the, the therapy. I think one of the um, misunderstanding of RFT is we just let them do what they do and we do not support this other piece. So, so competence is in the model, but it's just how it works of, um, with everything else. And then the other side of competence is there is this um, the skills-based competence that we are talking about, but where there's also a felt sense of um, competence. I want to, you know, feel good about this. This is about um, me driving. And then so I, I feel com um, comfortable and confident in managing um, eating. That also will give us some mileage as we as we work through our, our eating challenges. So that's that's the RFD5 values um, in a nutshell. Wow. Um, you know, what I'm really interested in is around individualized care or the, or the whole person approach, which I, I, I can see, you know, um, why you might shift in that direction. But, you know, it's um, either, either way you've expressed this particular principle or value really nicely. Um, it's RFT to me feels like a, a kind of a, a a shift away maybe from a more manualized way of working. And for some practitioners, particularly if we have been trained or exposed to a lot of kind of manualized kind of quote unquote interventions, I can understand that our, our brains might be like, what? Oh, there's no like one way of doing this, particularly for a particular um, group of people, there's no there's no one way. So how would you um, how would you kind of best describe why RFT not being manualized is most helpful for for a whole bunch of people? Right. Um, go back to when I mentioned. I think right now. We have, I think we're still learning about eating. We, you know, dietetics is still a very young profession and we have just at, still at the very early beginning of moving away of, you know, thinking there's one way of eating and then everybody is, you know, is it's disordered or, or abnormal. We're also moving away from boxes, right? These are anorexia boxes, bulimia boxes, diabetes boxes, and so what we have been used to be, you know, how we were trained is, you know, this is what we do, um, this condition. So you have one handout for this. If you have this condition, this is the gold standard approach. You know, we hear that a lot, right? If you have this condition, this was your first line of treatment, second line of treatment. And I, I think that is not the best way to treat human beings. That may be a cost-effective way for a healthcare system to manage illnesses, but I do not think that's the best way to treat people. In particular, something like eating, which is so personal, and my eating may be different from yours, but is it really okay for you to pathologize my eating because I have a limited palate? I think there's a lot of ethical issue when we think about pathologizing someone's eating and um, the other pieces with along with this um, discussion is the treatment let's say manualized um, approaches we have a several manualized approach to treat um, eating issues now 
And they kind of make everyone try to eat in a certain way. Like for example, one of the, one of the manual will, that, that, that a lot of people are using, when you look into it, there are some very, um, actually some pretty strong um, weight stigma language in there about what is a healthy weight. If you, you know, um, you, one of the, let's say the, some of the cognitive, cognitive approaches will be talk using health to motivate people and teaching nutrition, um, rather than trusting that when we provide the context, a person will naturally to grow into that ability to eat, right? So, so I think um, that these manualized approach really work on fixing people, making them from this way of eating to what I think I as if whoever, you know, whatever it is that the, main, the mainstream um, eating looks like, we're trying to make people to eat this way. So it's a very behavioral kind of modification approach. Um, and I don't, my experience, a lot of people who have gone through those treatments do not feel it's a dignified way. And, and it actually, it may change the eat, eating behaviors, but it can also has a lot of lasting psychological impact. People feel really negative about it, or people feel like there's something really wrong with um, why their eating was not good enough before. And but you know, is it really okay to say like you know if I do not like vegetable, is it really okay to say that that's a pathology? Um, you know who gets to decide? And so so that's why when we look at RFT, we want to to be in a way that that is a dignified way to treat people. So that's why we put autonomy there. And yes, maybe it makes sense to eat vegetable. Maybe vegetable does have these nutrients, but we're not saying that everybody has to eat this many servings of vegetable. If vegetable doesn't work for you um, in that individualized care um, lens, there's work there. there there's room for that. Like you don't have to like vegetable. I'm not saying do not eat vegetable. I, when I say this, sometimes people are like, Grace, why do you say that? You know, it's almost feeling like we're telling people everything is okay. Some of that get misinterpreted that way. But what I'm saying is if that person wants to, we can support that person to work towards liking vegetables or to explore it. However, we, we don't want to um, penalize people for not liking them. It reminds me of one of the core tenets of motivational interviewing, uh, wherein, you know, our, our task as health practitioners is to uh, create an environment where change is more possible if and when the person chooses. And what you're speaking about really reminds me of that core tenet. It is not our job to fix or to do to. It is to be alongside to develop the, yeah, to, to develop both the environmental influences and also, Grace, what you speak to here is also develop the in, internal, the internal um, environment as well, where things feel more possible, things feel more safe, that it might not feel 100% safe, but it feels a little more safe to explore, to be curious, to try. And that even if that is met with some kind of um, reluctance, I don't like the word resistance myself, so I just want to name that, um, but some reluctance or some hesitation or even some fear, that even that is met with acceptance. Even that is met with um, curiosity, maybe, or you know, in the context of somebody's 
whole experience. Because as you say, you know, um, people's experiences with food can, it, it may come from a, a sensory or neurobiological background, um, but it can also come from um, trauma or traumas as well. Um, you know, it, including um, racial trauma, um, weight stigma and, and weight and um, weight and body-based trauma. There's lots of different ways in which people feel not correct in the world. So responsive feeding therapy to me feels not just like an intervention. It feels like, it feels like a, almost like a re revolution in the way that we understand human, the humans and food intersection. Yeah, thank you. You 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 describe us all so lovely, Fiona, and and that's that's what our intention is. And I I don't know if we're at a stage of able to teach it or, or support people to be there, but that's certainly the the vision. And um, yeah, and I think the other piece is a lot of people feel stuck with manuals. Um. I hear it, I, I see it in, you know, social media, I see it in dietitian groups, I hear in supervision, sometimes um, they, they're, the language may be like, we've tried all this, but nothing works, so maybe there is not another way, or families or individuals feel, um, feel really stuck because they feel like I, nothing's worked, I've done everything. So RFT is intended to be a way to guide clinicians to think through um, these challenges with a client so so we it's to give to guide of what is what is the next step so you're right so it one of another um theme that i've spoken to previously um is that this we we would like this to be compatible with other um treatments so we're not saying this is the only way and everything else is not good. That's not what we're saying. So let's say if it's a child who truly struggled with, with, with sensory um, issues and they need support in sensory issues, we're not saying sensory, it's not, it's not important. That could be part of it, but the, the reality is what, what um, myself and a lot of colleagues find is some of the um, our clients that we work with have been labeled with the sensory issues, but probably a much smaller subset truly struggles. Sometimes we go through that a little too fast, right? So, so what we want, um, so yeah, so what we want is to say that yeah, if this is you know, and if this is someone who need, um, who need uh, maybe trauma work, if this is someone who need oral motor work, we're not saying we're not including it. This is where the competence come in. Is we're just saying that all this also occurred while respecting autonomy, while including relationship, while including the person's internal motivation. So we were hoping to help clinician to think through a case to find like okay, this is when is the best time to do what? I think this is what we're trying to give you a framework to make decisions of when is the best time to do what? Because what I have seen in supervision is sometimes um, um, interventions just kind of get thrown in and that may or may not be the best timing. So, yeah. I really appreciate you um, introducing supervision because I think that probably takes us into a really interesting kind of uh, realm that you and I both share a, a big passion for, and that is the reflective space. And, you know, it's all very well to be taking courses and to be reading books and to be going to conferences and listening to webinars and so forth. But something that really 
helps these ideas land and become integrated in us so that we have greater um, perhaps decision-making capacity when we are guiding and working alongside individuals and families really comes to the fore in supervision. When you're able to be with someone else who is able to take a bird's eye view with you, you can unpack um, and because our tendency of course is to want to find the quote unquote right answer, the correct way, you know, of course. We've been trained in the very white centric medical model type of thing where there is one right way and we can accidentally really, you know, find ourselves wanting to pursue that too. And if we're not doing it in this particular way, then the, the default is, well, I'm doing it incorrectly. And that parallel process can show up in our clients too. You know, where if I'm not doing it this way, I've done it wrong. It, it, it's not working because I'm not doing it correct. So, so I'm, I'm super interested to hear your kind of your thoughts and reflections on what happens in supervision in your experience that really uh, lets the, this stuff land because you know, it, it, given that RFTs, you know, it's not a manual, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a very comprehensive set of guidelines. How can dietitians and other health professionals use their supervision space really well? Oh, good question, Fiona. Um, so the last few years, as I shared earlier, I've been, you know, doing some courses and developing some resources. One of the theme I keep hearing from colleagues is, I went to that, I took the, but I don't know what to do when I am with a, a family or client together. So there seems to be a disconnect from taking the course material into real life practice. I, I know, Fiona, you also teach a lot of course. I'm curious, do you, have you heard that from dietitians? Yes, I have, absolutely. And even when, so a lot of dietitians will say, I want to hear you do it, or I want to see a, like a mini little consultation being done. And although I understand that, when I do some training and I, and I see people doing it in real life, I do find that helpful too. But I think we also need to be careful of that because that is showing one way of approaching a particular, whether it's a dilemma or a little uh, a minefield or a, or a stuck point or, or something like that. So that's what I notice is we kind of get, the, the theme is getting, getting kind of caught up in doing it right. Yes, it, exactly. And that's what I've, I experienced too, is co colleagues saying, we still struggle. I have all this information, but what, where the hangups could be, it could be, I've explained this, but then when I'm not getting feedback from maybe my client or parents, we don't know what to do, or um, they're not quote unquote, following my instruction. And so when it came out, my experience leaving a session, maybe I feel stuck, this is not working, but in supervision, we can dissect a session. We can talk about what felt stuck. We might be able to unpack. Sometimes it's, I don't know what to do when they do not respond. Or sometimes if they disagree with me, what do I do? So then it gives us a little bit more room. It's not just about what I do. We can pay a bit more attention to where, where things get stuck and, 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 um, we all get stuck in different places. There are certain themes, but then we also, you know, have, we might, you know, we bring ourselves into the, the sessions. Um, I personally do not like conflicts. If I can, I will 
you know, run the other way, but, you know, that doesn't work really well in the work we do. So <laughs> I have to learn um, how to, um, let's say, you know, for example, if there's a disagreement, I have to learn how to actually draw attention to it. So we talk about it because that's, you know, uh, get, 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 get it unstuck, right? So that, that in supervision, I have found it to be helpful to really unpack those stuck places with colleagues and, um, and then also hearing um, what may feel uncomfortable. So we might take some certain knowledge and all that all sounds, makes sense and sounds good. But as I digest and think about that and then we might have certain step point like one example would be um i have um colleagues who say i feel uncomfortable commenting dynamics beyond food right for example um if um we, we work a lot with parents so if our chore or our task is to have families um do a certain things around food if they're not um doing it we, I feel uncomfortable in commenting on the parent-child dynamic or the couple, you know, the couple dynamics. I, I hear hear that a lot, right? So then that gives us space to actually think about it. And that may not come out until we really have space to slow down and think back of a session. Um, what do you think? Because I know you also do a lot of supervision, Fiona. <laughs> yeah, no, I concur with you 100% there. I think that um, it can be it can be the case that um, there are times when people come to supervision hoping it's going to be another kind of teaching space. And actually, um, in in supervision, as as you know, you and I supervise, as I understand it, in a similar way, where it's it's really around um, investigating and exploring um, both both the kind of the stuck and stuck and uncomfortable points, but then also things that have gone well. Um, you know, it's almost like the micro moments, those little moments where we can pause, slow down, pause, and un, un, unpick things a little bit so that we can see with a little bit more clarity what uh, a possible path forward might be. And sometimes that's about us. Sometimes we are the ones who, and this is really uncomfortable, and I'm talking about myself here too, by the way, is that we get in our client's way. Like we are the issue. <laughs> that happens I, so I, much. I think I know what you mean. <laughs> our own belief of what somebody should or should not be doing because we get caught up also in the, in the pressure to perform, in the pressure to be helpful, in the pressure to, um, you know, to, to be supportive to this person. And, and we do want that and, and in our good intentions, we can get in the way. And so that is, you know, that's a lot of what I know I bring that a lot to my own supervision is I feel like I'm getting in the way here. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I feel like people are, uh, I come to this work with the belief that people are always doing the best they can with what they have experienced. And I think, you know, when I'm in a, when I'm in a little stuck point, that's what I come back to is, okay, let's zoom out here and consider what else, like what else is here that is impacting me, that is impacting the person or the people in front of me what's what's happening between us that could 
be really helpful for me to just slow down and understand a little bit more because so often it's me <laughs> uncomfortable yeah and and also thinking broadly about some you know a case and i i think i know what you mean fiona and i recently actually was just reflecting on a case um that i realized that i'm working way too hard and mm -hmm. i need to back off a little bit and and i think we all have those moments so it was through um a peer supervision that I start okay realizing like I this feels and I start to realize where the pressure came from mm -hmm. and and why I started you know um feeling like I need to up the ante and then why where I started working harder and now I'm contemplating how do I move back so not completely mm -hmm. you know shift but then how I gradually shift back to where the position I need to take and um and that takes a lot of space um I know a lot of our colleagues, not just dietitians, uh, um, health professional colleagues are just really swamped right now. We're just managing. Yes. And so it's so valuable to um, to have the space that we can slow down um, to to think to think about it. And and I, I yeah, no, I, I completely understand. Um, I agree that sometimes we get in the way and but without the space, it's hard to acknowledge, it's hard to talk about. And it may not feel safe, you know, sometimes for us to acknowledge, I may be getting in the way. Uh, well, of course, because all throughout our um, university training, we are coached to perform, to perform the correct way in order to pass our degrees in order to graduate in order to take the next step and so those kind of um, and it's not just at university it's not just when we're doing our health practitioner training it also is years and years and years and years of you know society sociocultural kind of uh, training you know that, that brings us to a point where it's actually really hard to to see to, to kind of see where we can where we can make shifts and to um, to take a much more bird's eye view of a particular situation or a, or some conflict or something um, and see ourselves in that process too because our tendency is to either go into hypercriticism and like I'm doing it wrong, what am I doing, I need to improve, I need to work more, work harder, you know, that kind of thing or then we tend to disconnect and say it's my client's fault, they're not doing good enough, you know, so it's not an either or it's not an either neither of those things are necessarily going to help us get where we where we need to go and so in supervision like we're talking about it creates this spaciousness where everything gets um like a big paddock to run around you know where a paddock has still has fences we still have boundaries we still are able to see where we're going to be butting up against be butting up against an edge whatever that may be, but that we give things tons of space and tons of room. Um, so, yeah, well, yeah, I know you for you and I, supervision has transformed our practice and that we don't take that lightly. No, and, and what I am finding is um, I've, I've 
tried it a few times because with hearing colleagues saying that we, this is, you know, we're, we're having a hard time in practice. I have tried several times in running supervision groups and, and it turns out I find that it's quite helpful. So, um, so that's why I continue to do. I know you recently interviewed my friend Noreen. Um, yes. I love Noreen. Noreen, if you're hearing this, Hi there, I love you and all that you do. Um, so I, uh, I've i done um, a group with my friend Katia, Dr. Katia Rowell, the feeding doctor a couple of times. And um, now she's switching gears to, um, to some other work. So I've been collaborating with Noreen and Noreen brings in such a unique perspective of neurodiversity. And I learn a lot from her, we collaborate really well. So, um, so we're hoping to offer um, supervision to give this space to um, for, for colleagues to really um, have the space that we aspire to provide a space to, to think and, and ask questions. And um, I have found um, in these group supervision, most of the time when, uh, when our colleagues bring forward a case or where they get stuck, often the question is, what am I not doing? What do I need to do more? Or is there must be a, a right solution somewhere that I'm not doing? Most of the time we walk away with actually, you're doing what you need to do. And um, what the sort of the, the where, how do we, how do we get unstuck? It could be maybe this family needs uh, maybe another, you know, a new person on the team. Maybe we need to bring in a therapist. Maybe we need to clarify certain medical issues, or uh, maybe we need to have this assessment done, or it may be sometimes parents, we need to help parents to articulate their expectations a little bit more. Um, you know, we need to give parents a bit more thinking space to for them to, to clarify what they want, because sometimes our clients or parents may not actually know, um, they just know they need help. So, you know, sometimes it's reflecting with, uh, with our colleagues that what our client need is not more, more information. Mm -hmm. It's actually, there may be something else in the picture that we, that we need um, to provide. So that reflection space um, has been really helpful. And what you, I echo what you said earlier, Fiona, that I think um, what I've been trying to do personally is because I get overwhelmed with taking a lot of courses. So I'm trying to restrain myself. And, and every time I want to, I see a course, I'm like, okay, Grace, do not sign up yet. You have to think through it. How many courses can you manage a year? I restrain myself. And, and then I have to choose you know, how many I do a year, and then try to also make some space so that it's for me to, to reflect, but not, um, but not just, just doing a lot of, like, a lot of knowledge, um, acquiring new knowledge, because I have found that overwhelms me, and, and, um, and I found that that balance has been helpful. I know you also, you said, you mentioned you do some reflective work, so can you, I'd love to hear how, you know, a little bit more about what you do. I'd love to learn from you. Oh, thank you, Grace. It's, it's very kind of you. Um, look, I think I think the way that I like to create a space for others to learn is um, it's very relational. You know, the the more that I have um, done my own personal work and my own supervision work, and you know, as well as the you know courses and study and so forth, which is just very intellectual more than anything else. The more I think about it, um, I've been very, very influenced by polyvagal theory and by um, neurobiological kind of approaches. Mm -hmm. And similar to weight inclusive work, I feel like now I, 
I see the world and I see my own experience through that lens as well through so we might call it um, you know trauma informed work but I think more than anything else it's nervous system informed work we all have a nervous system that has been influenced impacted and shaped by our life experiences and we can't remove ourselves from that either we have all grown up in the world having been impacted and influenced and has shaped the way we show up as well and so when we are named as health practitioner and the people who we work with are named as client that you know and, and that brings with it a particular hierarchy and a particular power dynamic as much as we would like to dissolve that through our kindness and our us being friendly and so forth it exists and we bring our own nervous system experiences into the room with us like physically into the room with us and what i really enjoy doing in supervision is we don't always necessarily talk about the nervous system although if somebody is interested i call myself a neuro nerd and if someone else is also a neuro nerd that's where we tend to go is to really think about our experiences through the lens of what's happening in my body what am i noticing in my own experience when when i am involved in a particular interaction so for example when it might be that um somebody's working with a family who who the kind of to, to use shorthand you know the whole system is pretty dysregulated you know the the young person uh, maybe a, let's just say a 14 15 year old is dealing with some pretty high medical acuity anorexia nervosa the parents are really concerned they're not on the same page about what needs to be done one parent is quite disconnected the other one is getting um, very emotionally expressive shall we say particularly around mealtime the young person's super pissed off about the whole situation doesn't want to have a bar of anybody or anything and so it gives us a lens to look through when we're understanding what is happening in a particular situation and what's happening in us as we are aiming to support a family an individual across the age spectrum across the um, gender culture um, diagnostic spectrum as well and also we're able to position ourselves in terms of privilege and power so that when we are working with someone who has very different or just different just different experiences to us we're also able to give tons and tons and tons of space to the person's experience and how they might be experiencing working with us if we just if you know because we all show up so differently in the world so that I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with this I'm just we're having this wonderful conversation which happens to be recorded Grace um, but that's what I really love bringing to a reflective space is really developing a more I often say supervision is not therapy but if it feels therapeutic and you feel like you are more familiar with yourself and the work that you're doing, then we're doing this work well. Like, okay, we're, we're doing this work well. If you are feeling more curious, if you're feeling more compassionate, if you're feeling more willing to, to take a few little risks, you know, then, then, then we know we're doing this work well. Um, so, yeah, that's what I aim to kind of bring. Yeah, when you said like it doesn't, it's not therapeutic, but it could, you know, have those overlapping area. I'm thinking a couple of um, 
um, in a few of my sessions with uh, colleagues, um, sometimes it may bring up themes that they want to either go back to therapy or they want to take into therapy. You know, um, uh, I know you and I talk a lot about boundaries and, um, you know, what, you know, something that we, I, we may reflect on how our individual boundary play out in clinical in our clinical cases and our professional lives, but I may not go and meddle with why you hold your boundary this way, but that may be something to take to your um, therapist. So it is, you know, so important to, yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting you point that out because I think it does certainly bring our, um, bring awareness to our own pattern. So sometimes that gives us space for us to, to do things a little differently, to do things a little boldly or try something different. And sometimes it gives us room to um, maybe to do some healing work. Yes, absolutely. And that's why, um, and that's why your manager, your boss really shouldn't be your supervisor. <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> I and and I know we've talked about this. Um, I I think the value of supervision isn't you know isn't valued enough. I I go in and out of supervision myself just because of the cost, <laughs> and and I you know and but I I I feel it's it's really important, and I I share with you how I try to balance. So I kind of strategically think about what I can reasonably do in terms of supervision versus course. And um, when I started out um, in my practice earlier, I, I think I tend to gravitate towards like what we shared about early learning. And then now I'm realizing that how important it is to have those um, space where I'm not packing my brain with new information and I allow myself to exactly like you said, to, to slow down and pause and, and reflect. Um, I think um, reflect about myself, reflect about like what you share, like how I may be getting in a way, reflect about the case in general. Sometimes we miss um, themes that, uh, that are, that are in, important. And so we, we don't have to shoulder all the work after as we reflect, we notice there are things that it still give us guidance of what to do, but it's not that we need to work harder. Dietitians are very hardworking. I don't oh, know yeah. if you know. <laughs> so so some often the, the it's it's not about us needing needing to know more and needing to work harder. No, oh my gosh, I could not agree with you more. That's we are incredibly committed and caring, and um, we do work really hard, and and that's often the kind of the the what we what we pull out of our pocket first is if something isn't feeling you know like it's quote unquote working then i need to work harder and i often just come at it like maybe there's something we're not seeing in a, in a way maybe there's something we're missing maybe maybe actually slowing things down maybe we're all exhausted you your client your family it, maybe everybody is maybe the whole system everybody is just exhausted and we need to take a breath and reevaluate. There I always think there's there's such value in reviewing and evaluating. You know, it, it is part of our nutrition care plan process, right? Is 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 after monitoring comes evaluation. And often we think we forget that piece and that we can review and check in with ourselves as well as checking in with our clients and families and so forth. How are we doing here? What's feeling like it's going well? What's feeling like it maybe needs some gentle attention or a little bit tweaking or, you know, that 
it's okay to do that collaboratively and it's okay to do that in supervision as well. Yeah, if, if it's okay, I want to share an example of yes. how I think this could be helpful. Um, I've, it has come up that I've worked with, a, let's say I'm thinking about a specific case, um, a colleague brought for, uh, forward a case. So she feel pressured because she's in, in a team as a dietitian where she's supposed to help this mom to help the child to eat more healthier. So eat more vegetables and meat. Um, and when we actually look at the system, um, this is a single uh, mother who has multiple children and some of them has very high medical or, uh, or special needs. So mom has very limited capacity to cook. And sometimes I see these um, discussion come up among um, our colleagues. And then we are tasked with this job that I have to, because that's my role on the team and to be an effective dietitian, this is what I need to do. Uh, but if we take a step back, it's important to realize outside of our clinical world and what we need to do, go back to what we talked about in feeding therapy. There are all these dynamics. There are social inequity. You know, we, we talk about how um, single mothers, they, they, depending where you are in the world, but most places do not provide a, an adequate social security network. So they are working a lot and they might not have the resources to provide an optimum feeding environment for the children. Um, but we cannot penalize this mother. She really could be doing the very best. And it could be the even the very best that she could do is not, you know, in line with what we believe is the good feeding practices. Um, but we cannot push the mother anymore. So then it just creates this dynamic. The mom may feel really pressured and the child's feeling pretty pressured because of how maybe um, there is a provider feel like we need to prescribe this issue and then that goes to the dietitian and it goes to the parent and it goes to the child. Um, but not, but we, what we didn't see is, you know, like I talked about social security network. Um, does this child have adequate um, support for special needs? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then also sometimes we, we also think, I also think about how much we push, um, let's say healthy eating on children. And actually the harder we promote healthy eating creates a lot of pressure for um, parents and family who may not be able to provide an optimal environment. I've heard many, many mothers who are doing their absolute best um, feel like they're not doing a good enough job and because they're not able to do all these things that, that are recommended um, because of um, the, the condition that, that they're in, they might've been uh, a generation that are coming out of poverty. Yeah. So, so, this person may be doing much better than um, her previous generations. And, but at the same time, she feel pressured that I'm not doing good enough because my child's not eating in a certain way. So there's a lot of dynamics that play out um, in a bigger picture. So sometimes when we reflect, we might realize this person's really doing their very best, even though the, this person may not be in line with what we think needs to happen. And we might have to let it go or we might have to... Um, ponder is this you know do we say this is the best now or do we wait and come back or you know or sometimes I what I do is I tell you know you're doing 200% and you're doing a fantastic job and it's okay this is where where we are and and sometimes I provide the assurance um to cases in these situations that um 
your child's growing well, it's getting all the nutrients and let's not too worried about this one particular thing, right? But then it all depends on, on individual cases, right? So the, the, the supervision also, I think the other aspect is to help us to, to really position um, sometimes these really difficult cases in, in context and think about um, the broader picture. I know um, in your group, the Mindful Dietitian group, there's lots of discussion also about oppression and privileges and, and this is where it can come into the clinical space. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's worthwhile probably also mentioning in your brilliant example here that when we do feel like, you know, forgive, forgive the crude example here um, of the meat in the sandwich, when we do feel like the meat in the sandwich and we're getting pressure from our workplace, let's say, for example, and we, we, we perhaps we don't feel choiceful too. You know, we don't feel like we have a lot of choice in what we're doing with this with this mum as you're describing here and and to be able to especially if we're a less less seasoned perhaps dietitian um and and perhaps you know this is an important job for us we don't want to upset our bosses and managers we don't want to be seen as difficult of course because lord knows that's the worst thing to be seen as um, <laughs> um so we can feel like it's, you know, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to actually shift gears and to take that position of this person is doing the best they can. How can I support them maybe differently to how my manager or my boss or my director or whatever expects of me? And how can I have this conversation with them in a way which helps me stay steady in my uh, role um, as well as advocating alongside alongside this particular family and so forth so i just want to acknowledge that in order for us to in order for us to take these steps we also need to have some kind of choice and safety as well you know when we're not feeling choiceful when we're not feeling safe in a particular work environment or even dare i say within a profession as well there is a lot of dietitians who do not feel safe within the profession for many, many, many very, very good reasons. Um, so that is one of the reasons why having collegial spaces where we're feeling held and witnessed and feeling heard and feeling like, like we do have a voice and like that we matter and all that, you know, that, that then filters down to the people that we're working with, which I think is, I think that's very, very important. Yeah, and, and if we go back, look back to what we talked about earlier, Fiona, um, why we put RFT out is we want to give people options, right? That's one of uh, exactly what you said. We want to put something out there to support colleagues who want to practice that way. We want to give people options. Um, and I, it's honestly, to be really frank, it was really, really hard and it still is sometimes to present this and, and and know that not everyone's going to agree and some people will criticize and, and have my name to it and feel like I'm saying something that people will not like to hear. It's not easy, um, but it's there. And, and that's why I so I, I always acknowledge we don't all have to agree. If that works for you, great. I just happen. I've talked to work with a lot of people saying that doesn't work and this seems to work for what I see. So this is my my contribution or a little bit of what I hope to do and to support, you know, this subset of colleagues. And, and um, I'm, you know, as 
time lapse, I'm hoping not just in this feeding um, and eating challenges in all areas of practice, as time lapse, we kind of figure figure it out. To be honest, there's so much we don't know. We we don't we have there's more we don't know than than really um, what we know. So so at this time, we really have to rely on relationship, our relationship, you know, with colleagues, our relationship with our clients to to guide us. And 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 it's tough work, and it takes a lot on us. Like it it it's really um, hard work. Yes, and we too are doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, I, 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 I think so, and I hope this helps. You know, if if any of your listeners feeling this way, it takes so much energy to stay firm to what yes. you believe. If you really believe it, and if what you believe and what you do seems so different, and and many of us have this bubble this weight inclusive bubble or our colleagues and when we're I'll go out when we go out of those bubbles it is so difficult um so yeah so you know what, what what we hope to do is to provide a little bit of that grounding so we can all of us can can feel a little bit more grounded we feel like there's connection to people in communities somewhere else that that agreed and so we can we can a little we can be a little firmer to support you know the people we support yeah love that thank you so much grace this has been an incredibly rich conversation i'm so grateful to you and to your colleagues and to noreen for bringing um your what you do to the world and the opportunities that you offer to us to 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 learn more about how to work more effectively um, with with families and individuals um, across the across the spectrum so um can you tell us a little bit more about where people can find information about you, about the supervision groups, about your courses, uh, please? Yeah, so I, I have a, a Facebook page that's actually really inactive, but you can still find me there, to be honest. I am still, I'm in a state where I'm trying to decide what I want to do um, with social media. So, but I'm still there. I'm just not regularly posting. So I welcome to hear from you if you want to reach out. Um, Noreen and I are uh, doing um, a group. So if you're interested in um, joining our group, um, um, I'll give the information to Fiona so you can find out a little bit more. if we have enough numbers, we might we will try to continue um, to do the group. So feel free to let us know. And um, yeah, and then the other way to find me, the best way is probably um, email. So if you're interested to um, to seek more support and resources, feel free to to reach out and and we'll go from there. Um, I I currently still I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, website, social media. I, at one point I thought about completely quitting and, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> oh, good on you, Grace. No, it's, um, you know, having, having, you know, websites and social media and stuff, it's complicated. And so uh, as we're speaking today, I want to offer you the compassion and space to do what feels okay to you with that. I think you, it doesn't mean that you're not bringing the most amazing things to the world maybe it just means that people have to go to different spaces to find you and that's okay yeah, i think i'm so yeah i'm so gonna be and i love let's say your group i i, I really enjoy the the collegial support and a lot of the groups so i'm still around and i'm just reflecting on um 
the overall impact of social media in yeah. all of our lives. I'm, I'm having a lot of mixed and complicated feelings. So which so which dovetail into what I want to do with social media in my professional life. So I'm still in that messy um, thinking space. Good but I, but yeah. I am I am there. I'm just um, a lot less active because I'm in this thinking space. So thank you for, for that compassion, Fiona. Of course, of course, you're allowed all the space that you need. Goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Grace, thank you so much for your time and um, your energy and everything that you bring to the world. Please know how much you're valued and how much you're respected and and how much you just make such a uh, – you give such valuable gifts to all of us within our profession as well as to, you know, our uh, the collective efforts to make the world just a little bit easier for more people. So a really, really big thanks. Thank you so much, Fiona, and my gratitude to you and all your listeners and, and, and the community. Like I said, the, the, our weight inclusive bubble means a lot to me and, you know, it's what has sustained and kept me in the profession for this long. So my, you know, my gratitude to, to all of you as well. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm here in the bubble with you. It's our, it's our, mm-hmm. it's our lovely little space, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Grace. Thank you and goodbye and I'll, you know, see everyone around. Sounds good. See you soon. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone. 